Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hi, uh, this is Al Franken. Um, Look, the truth be told, I started recording these podcasts right after the uh, November elections and the midterms. And the reason was to start interviewing experts on issues that I think are really important. And I wanted not just knowledgeable authorities, but I wanted compelling guests who I've gotten to know over the years in my various incarnations you know, like Jeffrey Tubin and Nancy Gertner, who we had last week to tell us about the, the Federalist Society, how Trump is packing uh, the courts with what Tubin called 100 percenters. And the idea behind all this is to give listeners an in-depth handle on the issues that matter to the lives of Americans going into the 2020 election cycle, issues like the courts, Because during the 2016 cycle, there was virtually no discussion of actual issues. It was it was all the Trump circus and Hillary emails. And that was not just CNN and MSNBC. It was The New York Times. It was The Washington Post. If you did a word cloud for Hillary on Election Day in 2016, it it would have been one big word, emails. And the cable news channels would just cut to any Trump rally and uh, stick with them because it was entertainment watching this narcissistic freak show. And for any of the other uh, Republicans to get any oxygen at all, they would have had to bite the head off a live chicken sometime during their rally. And uh, Ted Cruz did that toward the end of the primaries, but uh, the media never picked it up because they were on, on Trump. And the only issues that we discussed during the 2016 campaign were through the prism of something dumb or crazy that Trump would say. So, for example, the terrible Iran nuclear deal, according to Trump, was negotiated by very stupid people like Ernie Moniz, who before being energy secretary had been chairman of the MIT nuclear physics department and who negotiated the incredibly complex technical terms of the deal with his Iranian counterpart, who was also a nuclear engineer. So idiots like Moniz had evidently negotiated the stupidest deal in the history of our country and on health care, uh, Trump told everyone he was going to replace Obamacare with something terrific. That was it. Oh, and, and he had one policy idea that was literally the only idea he offered during the campaign about, about health care. 
and you won't remember what it was until I remind you right now. His idea was to allow insurance companies to insure people across state lines. You remember that now? That was going to create much more competition and bring down the costs of health insurance, and it just be it would be terrific. The thing is that the ACA requires insurance companies to cover people with pre-existing conditions and not charge them more, and to provide all 10 essential health services to get rid of annual and lifetime caps, like time limits, and all this good stuff so that states weren't worried anymore about fly-by-night insurance companies coming into their state and selling useless policies. So guess what? Insurance companies could insure people across state lines in a number of states. And guess what? No insurance company did it. Not one health insurance company provided insurance out of state. And let me tell you why. Provider networks. A big part of being in the health insurance business is providing a provider network. Doctors who you can go to who are part of the insurance company's network. Now, here's a little secret that Trump did not know. People like to go to a doctor in their state. And let me tell you why. Uh, Putting together a provider network is pretty intensive work. You really, you got to get to know the doctors and other healthcare providers in the state. And that requires a lot of high-skilled people from the insurance company going around the state to meet with and evaluate hundreds of health care providers. And that means setting up an office or several offices in the state so you're not really an out-of-state insurance company anymore. That's why Trump's only idea about health care was just ridiculous And that's why later as president, Donald Trump said, who knew that health care was complicated? Well, actually, pretty much everyone. My guest today is a guy who really knows how complicated health care is. Andy Slavitt is kind of an unsung hero of Obamacare because he is the guy who saved healthcare.gov the Obamacare website, which you will remember, crashed horribly. And after three weeks of total debacle, my guest, Andy Slavitt, called Health and Human Services from Minnesota and volunteered to offer some advice. And the next day, they flew him out to Washington, D.C., and he fixed the damn thing in in five weeks, saving Obamacare and probably saving Obama, who was still going to face re-election. And Andy, after that, was appointed by President Obama to head up uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, uh, which is a trillion-dollar agency. CMS also administers children's health programs, the uh, community health care, and the ACA. And I spoke with Andy in Minneapolis not long after the midterm election, um, in which we picked up 40 seats in the House, and health care was, was a big part of it. And Andy came to play. He's incredibly knowledgeable. And as I knew going in, because we were friends, 
not a little snarky. Before we go to Andy, though, uh, we've got a sponsor. We, we finally have a sponsor, and uh, I'm not used to this, but I'm going to read uh, a commercial, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell it. I'm going to sell it. <clears throat> when a natural or man-made disaster occurs somewhere around the world, we're all grateful that Doctors Without Borders is there to provide medical care and save lives. But who is going to account for all the economic devastation? Who's going to assess the damages? Well, that's where Accountants Without Borders comes in. That's right, Accountants Without Borders. CPAs from all over the world, but mainly New Jersey and Long Island, travel to the scene and immediately begin the exhaustive process of examining the books and determining who owes what to whom. And because Accountants Without Borders is without borders, not only can you contribute to their humanitarian work, but you can use them to safely park your money overseas, away from the prying eyes of the IRS. And don't worry, it's all completely legal. And that's because Accountants Without Borders shares a post office box in the Cayman Islands with attorneys without borders. So to find out how you can help victims of disaster and yourself, go to accountantswithoutborders.com backslash Al. Andy is uh, well known among people who pay attention to a healthcare policy. He was the head of Medicaid and Medicare for the last uh, two years of the Obama administration. Now, Andy, that's a, I've heard this referred to as a trillion dollar agency. That's right. So my question is this, Andy, has there been any evidence that the Trump family has been skimming a little <laughs> off the top? I have not seen any evidence of that. Okay, okay. You know, you don't hear a lot of good news <laughs> about the Trumps, and um, so no one can say I'm not fair here. That was very fair. Okay. Uh, we've just come through the midterms, and the Democrats took back the House for the first time since 2010, and the number one issue was health care. Health care. Health care. And it's the first time we've controlled the House since 10 when we lost it, and we lost it because of? Health care. Health care. The Affordable Care Act, we had passed that, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, so hell, we lost hell, the of a, hell of a decade, though, in yes. between. Then uh, in 12, Obama won. So we had actually a pretty good election. Mm -hmm. And 14, we lost the Senate because of? Health care. Health care. The Affordable Care Act the Ob or Obamacare. So um, this election, 2018, uh, the number one issue for Democrats was healthcare again. Healthcare again. So really, what happened here, and is is that we passed it in 2010, early 2010, and we didn't message it well. Would you acknowledge that? I think that's right. And you weren't there then. You you were in the private sector. Right. If I was there. We still wouldn't have messaged it well. <laughs> I, I think you, it depends what capacity you're in. Um, so the American people did not know really what the ACA was uh, until 
the Republicans accidentally took over the government, right? They didn't think they were going to win in 2016, right? They certainly weren't prepared. I think that's fair. I think <laughs> okay. that's fair. <laughs> okay. That's another way of saying it. So, okay. Uh, so they win in 2016, which means for seven or eight years, they have been saying they want to repeal and replace Obamacare and uh, replace it with, now, Trump said he would replace it with something terrific. That's true. And uh, I had been there since we passed the damn thing, since we wrote the thing. And I was wondering to myself, they've been working on this for seven or eight years. They know that we've insured more than 20 million new people. They know that we're subsidizing people so that they don't have. What, what percentage of Americans who get health care through the ACA, who get their coverage, uh, what percentage gets subsidies? 80%. And what, on average, is what they pay per month? Most of them pay under 75 bucks a month uh, for insurance. Okay, so the people that are getting, most of the people, 80% of the people that are getting their health care through the ACA are getting a really good, really good deal, really happy about this, they can right? Afford, they can afford it for the first time, for most of them. And we expanded Medicaid. That's right. So people are happy about that. That's right. Universally, I think. Okay. But they don't know it, really, (laughs) until until now the Republicans, I'm going like, okay, you got to do this. You got to do at least as well as the Affordable Care Act is. And what what have you been working on? How can you do this? Because I remember when we put this together, how hard it was, how hard this was to do. So I wonder what you guys have been doing for seven, eight years. This is going to be interesting. This is going to be interesting. And I've heard you say you were kind of interested too, right? Absolutely. I mean, you were giving them kind of the benefit of the doubt. Like, my goodness, they they must have something. You know, I think that was a little (laughs) bit of a challenge. but, but, But I think the challenge was pretty simple. If you can do something, and call it Trump care, call it anything you want, that gives more people coverage, gives them better coverage, and brings down their costs, Everybody will get on board and salute that. There's no pride of authorship in the ACA. So I think that was the that was the challenge. And it was certainly everything that Trump had said during his campaign that he would do. But you knew that Trump had no idea what he was talking well, about. But, but I wasn't we, shocked. No. I wasn't you, shocked. You knew it. You I, knew it. Yes. Come on. Yes. Because he doesn't know any policy, really. Yes. Well, and I think even... I think to your point, uh, because he was so broad in general, he gave policymaking over to Mike Pence and Paul Ryan and Tom Price, who was then the health secretary, and they actually had very specific ideas about what they thought was important in health care that were had very little to do with what he said in the campaign. Of, of course, because it wasn't going to be something terrific. So right. They, right. they roll out their plan, and I was, again, I was thinking... I just wonder how they're approaching this, you know, from a more free market, whatever it is they're going to do. So somehow they end up producing a bill or a couple bills that uh, about 23 million Americans lose health care, lose their insurance. Right, right. That's an important verb in that sentence. I agree. Okay, lose. Lose, yes. Lose is the verb. 23 million is kind of 
important too, because that actually is more right. than the people who gained it. So then you have less at the end than you had in 2009 and 2010. Not only that, no guarantee that if you have pre-existing conditions, you're going to be protected. Right. In fact, the way they got the bill to get enough votes, if you recall, was they added an amendment, a specific amendment written by Tom MacArthur, who, who just lost his seat. They added a specific amendment to take away pre-existing condition protections. That's how they got the bill passed. Okay. And all the practically all the Republicans voted for it. And all the Republican House members who ran this time, who were still running, said that it was a lie they voted to get rid of pre-existing conditions. It was a lie that they voted to get rid of pre-existing conditions that year. They did the last year, though. So they voted to get rid of them in 2017, but in 2018 they didn't. So maybe that's what they meant. You think? I, I was thinking, did they take some kind of fig leaf vote? They did. They did. They did. They did. Uh, uh, Tillis, Senator Tillis had put forward a bill, and, and I'm going to explain this if you don't mind it for just a quick second because it's fascinating with how, how bad this fig leaf even was. Okay. It said <laughs> insurance companies should not be must offer insurance to people who have pre-existing conditions, but they do not have to cover the pre-existing condition. In other words. Oh. In other words. Well, that's not protection for people with pre-existing well, conditions. It, so to take that example, let's say you're a woman with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. An insurance company must offer you insurance. They can charge you whatever they want. And well, that's not they protecting don't need to, you either. And they don't need to cover your <laughs> breast cancer. So it's everything but the breast cancer. So they took that vote, and I think that's the fig leaf vote they took, which allowed them to say, it's a lie that I voted against protecting pre-existing conditions. No, it isn't. You did vote that way. Right, right. It was a pretty cynical bill. And I think I think that might come back to haunt Tillis in 2020. Okay, let's give your bona fides a little bit to impress people about you. You were the guy that saved healthcare.gov. Is that is it that's fair to say, right? You came in, remember that everyone I think remembers that launch, or if you don't, you should. That was a disaster. The rollout of Obamacare, of the ACA, was healthcare.gov, and it crashed. It didn't go well. It crashed. Now, you told me, you were were here in Minnesota, you were at United Healthcare, you were head of Optum? Uh, Yeah, I was at Optum. Yeah, Yeah. okay. And this, you told me how it came about that you became in charge of fixing this thing. Tell me about that. And to be fair, a lot of people did heroic work fixing it. I was sort of the quarterback, or or maybe more accurately, the, the chief firefighter. I So what I did was I called Washington. It had gone on for three weeks where the website hadn't been up. Placed a call to Washington and offered to help. And that help could have come in any form, ad, advice in any form. And uh, I certainly did not expect that that call would be... Heated, I assumed it would be ignored. <laughs> As I, anyone would, right? right. Yeah. What I found out, though, was I think I was the only person in the country that actually called. Because two days later... I love that. Yes, well... That's my favorite thing about this story. <laughs> is that the, As far as you know, the you're only the idiot. only person right. that called. Right. So you call in, and they go, come here to Washington. Come Washington. 
Uh, I brought a single piece of paper around with a with a, with a couple <laughs> of my colleagues, and all I really said was, in effect, you've got a technology problem, but I bet what you have is really a management problem because technology problems are all solvable. Yours just happens to be very visible, and we have a major piece of legislation and perhaps a presidency on the line, so there's a lot of focus on it. <laughs> yes, but if you if you put those facts aside, this can be fundamentally solved if you approach it the right way. And two days later, they had a press conference, which was very interesting. And I listened in the press conference, and they announced that that I and the team I was going to be coming in with was going to were going to lead the turnaround, which was fine because we kind of had said as much. But at the very end, they said it had to be fixed in five weeks. <laughs> it wasn't. I, I had not heard that number before. But you know, so began I think a pretty crazy adventure uh, uh, personally, and I think for the country where we did you know daily press releases, press conferences, and really tried to rally all of the government employees, the outside contractors, my own team uh, into a single team. Uh, to get to real so, so you said this is really a management problem, and uh, I assumed because you had fixed this thing that you are just some kind of geek, uh, tech geek, and you're not. No, you're a manager. I'm not. I'm not. You know, it's funny. If I were going to break down how it happened, like in a in 30 seconds, I'd say there were 20 people with 20 ideas on what needed to be done, all of which could have been right, could have been wrong. I had no way of judging. All I knew was I asked one question: How many bugs? computer bugs or defects are there in the software and you know the answer was whatever that answer was it was several thousand i said well take that number let's let's divide that by the number we need to get out in every day let's hire one developer per, so they each person gets rid of one bug per day divided by the number of days we have in five weeks and let's just let's not work smart let's just work hard and everyone sort of looked at me like that's not a pretty that's not a smart plan. I said, "Well, let's work smart. Let's work smart later. Let's work hard now." And I don't have time to to listen to uh, a whole lot of ideas. So we went and we threw and we we did that. And two weeks in, I called my wife Lana, who I hadn't seen because I'd been in Washington just working, and said, "Honey, I think I made it worse." And she said, "You didn't make it worse." I said, well, I did. We have more bugs today than we had when I started. And not only that, but since we started fixing some of the bugs and more people started getting on the website, the hardware broke. And now we have no hardware and worse software. So I've I've sort of stepped in a leaky boat and I put my foot through it. And um, she said, there was very little she could say to me because I was I was actually really at a low point. This so was, you thought you were remember. just completely screwing up and completely destroying any chance that we'd ever <laughs> right. have a, have the Affordable Care Act. Right. Work. And it was not that long after that. And people would come to me and they'd say, Andy, it's getting worse. And all I would say to them is, well, what, do you, what can you do right now? Don't worry about the whole thing. What can you do today and do that? And what happened was eventually we started clearing up more bugs and those bugs would, would, would solve other bugs. And soon enough... Um, indeed, we got to be about 10 days away from the five weeks, and we were almost there. And at that point in time, uh, we called in people and said, okay, what are the, what's the smartest thing for us to do in the next 10 days? Because we've cleared about 75% of the bugs. And when we got to that five-week point, which was December 1st, 
the vast majority of Americans were then able to get on the site and buy health insurance. And a few weeks later, 7 million people had gotten covered through the exchanges. I want to go back to the very beginning. What I'm trying to do here is I, because we kept losing seats in the House and lost the House in 2010 and lost the Senate in 2014, all because of the Affordable Care Act, I feel that people never really understood what was in the ACA until (laughs) the Republicans tried to replace it. And then they suddenly loved the Affordable Care Act. So I want to, between the two of us, Mm -hmm. talk about why the ACA was the way it was, Mm -hmm. why it is the way it is, and start at the beginning. And the beginning for me was I was running for the Senate in 2008 against an incumbent Republican. And we were in a debate, and he said, when health care came up, that he said, the United States has the best health care system in the world mm. mm-hmm, because we have the Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. And I said, the Mayo Clinic isn't a health care system. It's the Mayo Clinic. We're proud of the Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic does health care at least as well as any place in the world, right? Yep. But it's not a health care system. And T.R. Reed, who was a Washington Post journalist, had written a book about all the different healthcare systems in the world of developed countries, all of whom have universal care, all of whom cover everybody, that's what universal care is, and have as good outcomes as we have and pay about half. half. So they each have systems, basically. So here we don't have, we did not have a healthcare system. If you uh, were getting your health care through Medicare, you're in the Canadian system, you're single payer. If you're in the VA or the military, you were in the British system, socialized medicine. If you were getting your insurance through your employer, uh, which most people do, it, you're in the German system of the Swiss system. If you aren't getting, if you don't have insurance, you're in the Cambodian system. Right. And what the ACA was doing was trying to get people from the Cambodian system into one other of the systems. And that's why when Medicaid was expanded, it get into single payer. When we said protected pre-existing conditions that no insurance company can charge you more for having pre-existing conditions, that was something, a tremendous benefit to people. We said no lifetime caps. The reason lifetime caps are terrible is if you get cancer if you, if you get really sick once you're gonna hit your cancer or something like that that's it that's all you got that's right so you're gonna go broke mm-hmm. and you know when i was campaigning in 08 i'd show up in any community and there would be at, at a vfw you know in the bar or at a cafe there always be a bulletin board with a spaghetti dinner or a burger bash for somebody who had lost all their money because they got sick. Right. And that's what people are terrified. That's why healthcare is sort of a, an economic issue, maybe the number one economic issue for most families in, in our country, which is why it was so powerful in this election. So I get, I win, I go to the Senate, uh, I knew Bernie Sanders. I had campaigned for him. 
Um, and Bernie's for single payer. Correct. And I said, I'm, I, I'd go with single payer, but Bernie, we're about 55 <laughs> votes short. Okay. That was not going to happen. Right. And we had 60. We had 60 Democratic senators. So not, you, you had to get every one of the 60 aboard. So a lot of us wanted, most of us, almost all of us, I wanted the public option so that people can either go to an expanded Medicaid or exactly a Medicaid for all or Medicare for all or whoever wants it. That's yep. what a public option is. Joe Lieberman said no to that. That's exactly right. Yep. <sighs> That's too bad. We also wanted to lower... As an alternative to that, lower Medicare to 55, and I believe it was also Lieberman said no. Yep. Yep. So, and we had other barriers, too, that we had to solve. Ben Nelson on on uh, choice and et cetera. And he and Barbara Boxer worked that out. Very difficult process. We get it done. And what it looks like is, I try to refer to it as a three-legged stool. Three-legged stool is you got to protect people with pre-existing conditions. So anyone with a pre-existing condition can get insurance and not be charged more. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do that, that means that you can't have free riders, people who don't get insurance, so you have a mandate. Right. Because otherwise the people won't get in until they get sick and the cost will be prohibitive. Right. Okay. And then if you're going to do that, if you're going to have a mandate, you have to have, to have subsidies for people who can't afford. And that's what we did. That's right. So that's how that worked. That was a very good, sound structure. And we covered people. And people, all the stuff I, I talked about, we had. Yep. And they just lied about it. Right. And I, and I would just add one bit of flavor to what you just said. That is a very centrist idea for how to cover people. So going back even further than 2008, you know, for decades, you know, we've been trying to solve this problem. You know, we, there was something called Hillary Care, which, as everyone knows, didn't succeed. And out of Hillary Care, at the same time that Hillary Care was going on, an organization called Heritage, which is, a as real we know, a conservative right-wing. think tank in D.C., decided they needed to have an alternative idea. So their alternative idea to Hillary Care was a place where people could go to buy subsidized insurance and have an individual mandate to require that they do that. That sounds vaguely familiar, right? And so you wonder why the Republicans in Congress and in the Senate opposed, in the House and in the Senate, opposed this, and it was all political because they didn't want Obama to get any accomplishments. I think that's. I think that is a very fair read, uh, based upon fair. Exactly. It's it's. <laughs> oh, let's call it true. Let's call it true. I mean, yeah, that's exactly. McConnell didn't want any achievements. Wanted to fight him on anything. No well, matter. you're just saying that because he said that. Yeah, <laughs> that's there. That's true. And as we know, when now when Republicans say something, it's not necessarily true. So right. But that was true. Okay, but that was true. So, in 2010, we pay an enormous price for finally getting 20 million people health care. 
Right, right. And look, to, I want to underlie a couple of points you made here. First of all, if you if you ask somebody about the ten features of the ACA, and you you, you talked about most of them: getting rid of pre-existing condition, uh, uh, discrimination, making sure that there's no lifetime limits on policies, free preventive care to keep people healthy. This is the essential uh, essential health benefits. essential ten essential health benefits: making sure that everybody has mental health coverage, hospital coverage, prescription drug coverage. If you if you pull those things, the Ten features of the ACA, roughly, they're all massively popular. They pull above seventy percent, except for one: the mandate, the individual mandate, the individual mandate, which which now the Republicans have gotten rid of. Right. So, um, it is absolutely true that if you talk about the financial protections, the security, the things that keep people in the middle class, that's what was very very important to people, and, and there's a reason for that. You know that when people get cancer, they often call the American Cancer Society hotline. The number one call to the American Cancer Society hotline is the following. And the American, the president of the American Cancer Society relayed this to me. I can't afford to have cancer. And indeed, within two years of a cancer diagnosis, four out of ten people have depleted their life savings. That's the reality that Americans face. And then it goes beyond that, right? And here, and here's in the following way: you go into a pharmacy. Next time you go into a pharmacy, you look around, and the facts are that one out of four people say, and this is self-reported, that they, when they get a prescription from a doctor, they can't afford to fill it. So, I often do this when I go into a pharmacy, and I think about the fact that. You know, you're there picking up a medicine for, you know, your wife who's got chronic pain or your husband who who may have a debilitating disease or your kid who's got asthma. And you walk up to the counter and the pharmacist says, okay, that'll be $280. And one out of four people kind of slinks away and thinks, and, and what do they think about on the way home when they're driving home? What do they tell their family? Honey, I... They were out of your medicine, or honey, we just uh, we'll, we'll, I got you some aspirin. What what's what is it that people do? This is people's current reality. So when the Trump administration uh, and Republicans say we're going to take it a different direction and we're going to get rid of these protections, people aren't just thinking about their health. They're thinking about wow, I I wouldn't be in the middle class. I wouldn't be able to retire if it wasn't for a measure of health care protection. Well, let's talk about prescription drugs because that is a big reason why why the cost curve of health care went up in the last four years. Um, and what what are you paying for when you go in, when you pay that 280 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Who is that 280 bucks go to? Why is it 280 bucks? Because we talked about other countries. We talked mm-hmm. about other developed countries. Again, they pay about, what, half of mm. what we pay for prescription drugs? It really depends. It could be much less than half. In some cases, it could be 10%, 20%. In some cases, it's closer to, I think the average is somewhere in the um, 30 40%. Uh, okay. So these are <laughs> other developed countries. We develop half the drugs in the world, half the pharmaceuticals in the world. So we are subsidizing other countries. And when you say eat we, to be clear what you mean, you're talking about the National Institute of Health uh, in well, large, in large part, right? Is, is some part of 
uh, of that. And That's then the research. And then right. they always argue in Congress, they always argue, gee, if you cut the prices of pharmaceuticals, we can't do the research that gets you your miracle drugs. Right, right. Well, let's take it this way. Let's just say there were two types of drugs, okay? There's one kind of drug that is a brand new, innovative therapy that's life-changing and dramatic. And, and uh, there, are, there are great promising things that could cure cancer and Alzheimer's and really improve the quality of people's lives. And great scientists are doing research on those things now. Let's just put that in one category. Let's just put that aside. Then there are literally tens of thousands of drugs in the second category. These are drugs that have been on the market for years and years and years, in some cases decades. And you look at that, and they have substitutes. They have other drugs that are, that are equally good, and it costs you know, pennies to make these pills or, or, uh, or liquids or whatever they are. Those drugs, many of them have been going up at 10, 20, 30% every year without, without changing anything about them. The EpiPen. The EpiPen would be an example. Uh, another example would be insulin. So we're not talking about things that it's kind of nice for people to have. We're talking about things that people, if they didn't have, they would die. So they have no choice but to get their insulin or to get their blood pressure medication or to get their EpiPen. And so the real question is, well, what's happening there? Let's grant for a second that the really innovative drugs uh, are going to cost a lot of money. And a hep C drug. A hep C drug, uh, a drug for rheumatoid arthritis or cancer, um, childhood leukemia, there's really great discoveries going on there. And again, and, NA, NIH is doing a lot of the basic research, so we're paying for it there, yep. and then we're paying for it when we go to the pharmacy right? Uh, in big time. Right. Compared to the rest of the world, who are getting these drugs right. for, for half or less, 30% the cost. So the American people are subsidizing right. the rest of the world. That's what – why would Trump – for that. Well, so the rest of the world does something really complicated that we don't do. Negotiate? Negotiate. negotiate. And like the VA does. The VA negotiates. Like the VA. Like the VA does. So they essentially say, we are going to use the fact that we are buying these drugs for a lot of people to get to a lower price. Now, really interesting. If you poll the American public, and I, I, I will admit I am a student of a lot of healthcare polls, and I try to... Uh, not be picky and picking and choosing, but to see what, what, what people really think and feel. Something like 91% of people believe that the American public should be using its negotiating power, like it does with the VA, to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. I don't and, know. and Democrats, including me, I've introduced a bill that has a, a package of ways to address pharmaceuticals, and part of it is Medicare right. should be able to negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies. Right. And uh, one of the things also is the advertisement right. of, of these, you, you know, the ads. When they read the bad side effects, <laughs> they have, you know, a couple riding a bicycle in, in the country with nice music on it. And while they're reading the, the side effects... Or you're they're listening to light jazz in a gazebo, or you're you're having a uh, uh, you know a three legged race with your grandchild, <laughs> right? Your granddaughter, right? And and that's when they read the, the the side effects, right? And so people are the visuals are so strong. Mm -hmm. I we are one of only two countries in the world 
that allow uh, these kind of advertisements and allow the companies to deduct from their tax. Do you know what the other one is? What's the other one? New Zealand. New Zealand. I don't know why. But most countries, most other countries, don't allow these advertisements at all. Right, right. And you're right. right, The taxpayers are paying for those advertisements. Right. Now, the president and Azar, the HHS secretary, have proposed this thing where they have to show the list price. Right. (laughs) During the commercial as if that's a – I guess that helps, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think it actually will do a lot other than – Force prescription drug companies, manufacturers, to own up to what they're charging for the drug. So I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's. And they might lower the list price. And they might lower it and, if and they then, get And then change the way you get discounts um, through middlemen and stuff, right? And coupons and right. stuff like that. Now here's the the idea I have. What you do is during the side effects, instead mm-hmm. of the you know listening to like jazz and the gazebo, you have actors enact the actual side effects. This is a requirement. Taking Temetrex may cause extreme dizziness and loss of balance. I'd like to see an actor do that. That would be fun. Lumetrin can cause reckless... I'm sorry. Let me try that again. I thought you were going to say rectal. Uh, That would be easy. (laughs) That would be the easy way to go. And I will. Uh, Lumetrin may cause restless leg syndrome and thrashing at night. Wouldn't you like to see that? Okay. Um, stop taking umexiltrin if you experience nausea and vomiting or extreme vomiting. I've, I've actually listened to these now that, since I got the idea, and all of these are, are in there. Uh Novertrum may cause scaling of the skin, <laughs> severe itching, and involuntary bowel movements. There we are. See? So you got it. Uh, Zumetrix may cause hair loss. <laughs> I would like to see that. And here's my favorite. And this is a real one. And you may have heard this. I, I don't know how many people have, have heard this and just gone, what? It says, don't take talts if you're allergic to talts. <laughs> have you seen that? Have you noticed that? I I don't know if I've seen that one, but I, something like that, yes. That rings a little bit of a bell. Don't take talts if you're allergic to talts. Seems like a good rule. <laughs> Seems like a good rule. I am... How do you know? How do you know if you're allergic? Well, that's the first question you have. Right. <laughs> you got to take it once to find out if you're allergic to talts. So the question should they should be required to say what happens if you're allergic to talts, which is that you know your tongue may swell to three times its size if you're allergic to talts. So don't take it. <laughs> I I I like that one. I think that would be a better set of visuals. Yeah, and they're said kind of fast. They're said kind of fast. They're said kind of low. Well, I'll redo those. Taking Temetrix may cause extreme dizziness and loss of balance. Stop taking Umexidrin if you experience nausea and vomiting. Umexidrin can cause restless leg syndrome and thrashing at night. Norvetrin may cause scaling of the skin, severe itching, and involuntary bowel movements. 
Zoometrics may cause hair loss. Don't take touts if you're allergic to touts. Stop taking Corbitrin if you have swelling of the mouth, lips, or tongue. So let's, let's talk about where we go from here. I think Mitch McConnell just said he's not going to do anything on health care. <laughs> I think that's what he said, or he's not going to fight. You know, they're not going to... I think they got the message from this election that they're not going to repeal and replace all the great things from the Affordable Care Act. But there are some dangerous things happening, which is that there's these lawsuits that are this lawsuit that's working its way toward the Supreme Court. And, uh, for example, Josh Hawley, and the, the guy who was just elected senator, B. Claire McCaskill, is a signatory to the lawsuit, which says that the ACA is unconstitutional because they took out the mandate. And once you take out the mandate, it all unravels. Right. So what you're saying is the, a guy that was running for Senate under the premise that he opposed getting rid of pre-existing conditions was also at the same time suing to get rid of pre-existing conditions. The protections. The protections. I would love to get yeah. rid of pre-existing conditions. All conditions. Yes. Fair enough. Protections. Josh Hawley... Attorney General of Missouri running for the Senate. He is a signatory to this lawsuit that would get rid of, among other things, get rid of protections for people with pre-existing conditions. He runs an ad saying, my son has a pre-existing condition. Right. And I think it has violins. <laughs> I think it actually has violins in the ad. And um, and they, they didn't actually use his son. They used a sad-eyed child. Mm. They found a sad-eyed child to mm. play his son. Mm. And his son was mad, but, <laughs> you know, he wanted to win. Right, right, <laughs> right. So, uh, and, but he says, my, my, so no one more than me wants to keep <laughs> the protections for people with pre-existing conditions, except that, you, as Attorney General, are a signator, and this is the, it was Scott Walker, I think, was a signator to yeah, it. Wisconsin, yeah. Yeah, the Wisconsin governor, obviously. He lost, though. Yeah. But Hawley is going to the Senate, and partly because he just lied. Right, right. The fact is, you're making an excellent point, which is the Republican Party spent such a long time benefiting from being against the ACA that even now that they are in a position where it's clear that the public has spoken. It's clear that, that this was a health care election. Uh, I saw research from Heart Research, which showed that health care was a bigger issue in deciding the election than the combination of immigration and the economy, which were the next two big issues, were, which, which were Republican issues. Health care was bigger than both of them combined. And the Republicans and the Democrats are all seeing the same data. So they they understand that that's what's going on. And so they understand that now uh, the Senate and that it being against those things is probably not popular. But there's a lot of things they do that most people don't see. And I think what you're pointing out is there's regulations, there's court cases, there's a number of things that go on every day that we have to continue to watch not because they are bad for Obamacare, but because they're bad for people, because they take the 20 million people who've gained coverage and they take coverage away by making it harder for them to roll. 
They make coverage more expensive. They are, and they are hoping to bring a case to the Supreme Court as this case that you're talking about that within the next couple of years would make the entire ACA illegal. And that's a frivolous case. But they have five. You know what? I think I think uh, we're going to see Roberts again step up because I think he reads polls too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the guy who's hearing this case right now used to work for a senator named John Cornyn, who, uh, who at least right now is the number two senator uh, in the Republican Party. And um, he is widely seen to be uh, very political. We'll see what happens in this ruling. But I don't think anybody thinks for a second that this is the judge that's going to um, prevent this frivolous lawsuit from progressing. And when I say frivolous, by the way, this is not me talking. These are most conservative scholars. Every conservative scholar that I know of has said this is a re- ridiculously frivolous case. But if it gets through that judge, in other words, if he says, yeah, fine, let's call it illegal, and then it gets appealed, it goes to, the, I believe, the Fifth Circuit, which has 10 appointed Republican judges and five and Louisiana and five Democrats. That's a that's a pretty tough court for a case like this. Then it would make its way to this to the U.S. Supreme Court, which my guess would be it would be sometime in 2020. And then you would really, I think, be faced with what you're talking about. But you'd agree we're on some thin ground. I mean, if 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 in fact you're correct and it's Roberts once again that saves us. It feels like for so many people who have so much at stake, uh, you know, we're on some pretty we're, we're we're on some much thinner ground than we ought to be. Yeah, and you know that he'll take something away, like he did. Like one of the things Roberts did was say that you that you can't require every state to expand Medicaid, which is one of the greatest things that happened right. in the Affordable Care Act. And when Republicans wanted to take that away, to shrink Medicaid, that was also part of what they were doing. They wanted to shrink Medicaid when they wanted to do that. I went to rural Minnesota and to hospitals there. What happened when Medicaid was expanded, it meant that people, a lot of people who didn't have health insurance now had health insurance under Medicaid. So Mm -hmm. someone goes into the hospital, they are insured. They hadn't been insured before. It was, the hospital had to pay for it. And now the hospital didn't and had much, much, much less uninsured people and, and much less uncompensated care. So what did that mean? That meant they could hire more people, more doctors, more right. nurses, more custodians, more technical right. people, buy better machines. And they became the number one employer in the county. And you could, and they could see people when they had the first sign of a lump in their breast as opposed to when they had stage four cancer. So it's kind of a win for everybody, which is why there are Republican and Democratic governors across the country that, that really have embraced it. Uh, and so it is um, it's something that should not be controversial. And if it was not attached to the Affordable Care Act, I think wouldn't be controversial. Uh, but but it is for all the reasons that I think we've talked about. Well, we had three states in this election that had uh, where the people of the state voted right to to, to well, well, adopt were, and expanded. Well, those are very Democratic states yeah, like Idaho. Utah, Idaho, <laughs> Nebraska. And by the way, Kansas is now. Well, they have a Democratic governor. Like the Democratic governor. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're very likely, if I were going to predict, uh, 
we're going to have expanded Medicaid by the time we get through 2020, when we'll, we'll be on probably a number of other ballots. It'll probably just be Texas and maybe a couple of southern states like Alabama and Mississippi um, that have not expanded Medicaid, and everyone else probably will have. Once again, putting them at the very top of the list uh, in terms of quality of life. Concerning. A little concerning, yes. Well, you know, here, you know, uh, this is an interesting fact. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. In Alabama, you know, every state has an income level cutoff to which if you make more than a certain amount, you can't get Medicaid. Mm-hmm. In Alabama, yes, that number is $3,000 <laughs> a year. Oh, no. A year. I shouldn't laugh. That's tragic. Yes. yes. That is tragic. Yes. Yes. If you make more than $3,000 a year, you make too much money to qualify for Medicaid in Alabama. It's hard to believe Jeff Sessions comes from Alabama, isn't it? It really it's hard to see how that fits. Oh, my God. $3,000. $3,000. Okay. The, I, I'm just I'm just stunned. That's the most stunning thing I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. Today. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you have this, uh, this organization, uh, the United States of care. Um, and your goal is to get us to, and do you, you cited a lot of polls today. And part of what you guys do is, is, is polls, see what people's attitudes are. You want to get us to universal care. Yeah. I want to, I want to do some, I want us to do something very simple. I just want us to catch up to the rest of the world. The rest of the world, um, I, I heard this comment from of one of the former prime ministers of Australia, and it really stuck with me. He's, and, and I like to compare us to Australia because when I compare us to, like, European countries, you know, people will scream socialist, but mm-hmm. and Australians are swashbuckling uh, towards people, kind of how we see ourselves. And he, he said, look, I, we, we admire you guys, talking about America. We admire you guys. Um, we think we got a lot in common. There's one thing we don't quite get, and, and that's that you seem to keep your citizens in a state of quiet desperation. And and by that, he said, you know, we don't do everything in Australia, but we make sure the basics are off the table. That if someone gets sick, they don't have to worry about it. You guys, unless you're filthy rich, and now I'm embellishing a little bit on what he what he meant, but I'm you know unless you're in the and really are quite wealthy most of us don't really know that we'll be able to afford to take care of our families if uh, someone gets sick and us as americans us as americans yeah and so what i all we're trying to do is say look there are three principles that more than 75% of the country agrees with this is us at united states of care the first one is that everybody in the country should be able to have a, a regular source of care and why is that important it's important because if you're using the emergency room, um, you are not really able to improve your health and your health outcomes. And there's a recent study that got done which said that if you have a regular source of care for four years running, your health outcomes start to improve dramatically and, you're caught, and the cost of taking care of you go down. And that's what happened with uh, expanded Medicaid and that's what happened with uh, the Affordable Care Act, more people insured, and uh, you don't pay anything for preventive care. That's exactly right. And and it may be uh, it may be a mental health professional. It may be that there's some technology that helps us. You know, we can be a little bit broad and a little bit innovative in how we define a regular source of care. It doesn't necessarily mean Marcus Welby, you know, with the white coat, but it does mean that you've got a connected relationship with the healthcare system. The the second principle is that 
nobody should have to choose between paying for health care and any other expense in their life. In other words, we shouldn't be going bankrupt any longer because we get sick. I think what people want is they want to be able to afford to take care of their family. I right. don't think they people are asking for more than that. And then there's a the third principle. And the third principle is that we should do this in a way that becomes sustainable and durable. And what I mean by that is we should no longer be passing laws with 51 votes just because we some one political party has the power. We should pass these laws with 60 to 70% of of congressional support because that's where we are as a public. As a public, we believe in these things that way. And we also should do these things in an economically smart way. Uh, we should be doing them in ways to control costs and bring down the cost of prescription drugs and so forth. But those principles that I just laid out, um, you know, I when I left the administration, I said, I'm going to, within a decade, we're going to be trying to do this again. And when we do it, we ought to try to do it right. And I'm going to raise roughly $100 million and essentially towards an effort that over the next decade, this will of the American people can overcome this sort of political infighting that that occurs in Washington. Uh, that's the organization, United States of Care, and they're active now. Uh, I'm uh, I'm a founder, but I'm, I'm on the board. There, there's a team that's working in states, working right now on policies, on proposals, uh, really at a grassroots level, trying to get policies like this to pass so that we can move to that place. Yeah, it's 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 harder to do these things in states, especially small states, um, uh, not politically necessarily, but just to carry it out, right? It is. It is. Um, what I would say is, though, that if there hadn't been Romney care in Massachusetts, which was the thing that Romney later disowned, uh, but but was a was a model for the ACA, it would have been very hard to pass the ACA because the Congressional Budget Office would have had nothing to score. It would hard, be hard to know what worked and what didn't work. And when you don't have ex- some, at least some examples in states, what happens is you get what I like to refer to as think tank fantasy camp. And think tank fantasy camp is this thing in Washington, which is not pretty. And both sides do it, by the way. The left and the right both do it. Where somebody on a whiteboard will say, this is the ideal healthcare system. And we should have this healthcare system. And we have, uh, and, and by the way, if you're a, Right-wing think tank, it basically goes like this. The free market will solve all of the problems. And to be fair, uh, you know, the, on, the, on the left-wing think tank would be more inclined to say there's no unintended consequences for government involvement. And both of those things... Uh, for for a, a single-payer, uh, government-funded, everybody... Uh, I mean, Bernie, as I said, when I got to the Senate, Bernie was for single payer and he's still for single payer of course and that's going to be an issue in among democrats who are running the 20 or so who are going to run for uh, the presidency you know if you're going to be a progressive and stake out the you know who's going to be the the bernie mm-hmm. who's going to be the bernie sanders bernie sanders may be the bernie sanders uh or elizabeth warren mm-hmm. or kamala harris or whoever is going to be that person to get that, you have to be for single payer. Now, every country, we always talk about this, every developed country has universal health care, covers everybody. How many have a pure single payer system? Well, I don't think there is a pure single payer system. 
but I want to just finish the last point I was making for a second, which is like the smart thing to do is to try some of these things out in states. There are proposals for single-payer systems that have come up in Vermont, in Colorado, in Washington State. And and so while you may not be able to do exactly the same thing you can do at the federal level, why not get some of these experiments going so then you can point, if you're a believer in single-payer, you can point to Washington State and say, see, look what it does. It brings health care costs down. It works. Or more realistically, this part works, this part doesn't. But to your other question, you, and, you, and that's how it happened in Canada. Saskatchewan did it, and boom! I uh, didn't they, know that. Yes, huh? I didn't know that. Yeah. The uh, oh boy, I hope I don't get this name wrong. I think it's Tommy Douglas who was the uh, whatever you are for a province, the not the prime minister of a province, but um, kind of a governor, something like that. Uh, he uh, is the most. If you ask Canadians. Right. Who who is the Canadian you admire the most in history? Tommy well, Douglas, yes, or, or Bobby or Douglas, it is. right? And, and Wayne Gretzky is like second. No kidding, no kidding. Yeah, and that's because Saskatchewan adopted single payer, mm-hmm. and everybody in Canada said, "Hey, that works pretty good." Well, see, here's the thing that's interesting: is um, there is going to be a role for people who can improve people's health and reduce costs whether they're in the public sector or the private sector, you just have to determine what that role is and what you want it to be. So it's not it's not going to be, in, in reality, it will never be as simple. And I worked with Bernie and his team on his bill, and I've worked with many of the other folks who have comparable and other bills out there, including when you talked about buy-in proposals and so forth. And it's, it's a little bit, people try to think about choosing single payer a little bit like, well, I'm going to pick out a pair of drapes and I want that pair of drapes. It's not really like that. It's a little more like city planning. You've got to do make a whole lot of decisions, probably hundreds of decisions about what do you want community hospitals to play and what role do you want community hospitals to play? How much, where do you want incentives to be? What role do you want patients to play? What role do you want care managers to play? There's a whole lot of things that get done in a healthcare system. And there are vastly more efficient ways to do them. And there are always going to be good consequences and some unintended consequences. So I think it's important that um, we have the debate in a way which starts with what are the principles we believe in. And we believe in those principles. And then we say, you know, we're going to probably make some tough decisions about how to get there. And they're not going to please everybody. One of the things you're talking about is just bringing down costs, right? That's right. And that's something that I was have always been interested in when it comes to healthcare because uh, when we see things like accountable care organizations, which cover a lot of people and get paid a lump sum, and if they keep people healthy, they actually make money. That's right. And you know, uh, Atul Gawande wrote that. Um, that piece in the New Yorker, which was this incredibly important piece in 2009, about McAllen, Texas, was much, much more expensive Medicare costs than than El Paso. Right. Okay. So similar. Yeah. Similar demographics, and w- the reason was sort of the doctors were doing sick care, and so doctors were not making any money taking care of someone who had diabetes. But they got 
the big payoff was when they lopped their foot off when the, when they did the f- removing surgery. the foot surgery yes. and and the doctors owned the MRI machines and so they did as many MRIs as they could possibly do and then they adopted an accountable care organization under ACA which rewards uh healthcare groups for keeping people healthy and their costs went way down what kind of delivery reform do we need to do to just bring the cost of health care down and how how much potential is there in that? So you described it exactly right. And I think the question now is less of what's the right answer and more of how fast can you get there and how fast can you get people there? I do, I do something interesting um, in relation to what you just asked, which is how much room is there. And, and I would suggest that anybody who is in a similar situation does the following. Every time I see a CEO of a hospital, which I admit everybody doesn't run into it all day long, but but I do, and I ask them the following question. If you had full capitation tomorrow, and, and I'll explain what that means, which is exactly what you said. If you got a lump sum of dollars, revenue dollars, for taking care of, of all these people in your community, if you had that lump sum payment, what percentage of your costs do you think you could take out of the system without hurting quality? And it is amazing, but the the answer is almost always between 25% and a third. And what's even more interesting is that the answer comes like that. They almost don't even need to think about it. People know that there is a lot of waste and a lot of things that they're doing that they're spending money on, largely in order to get revenue. And if they never had to worry about revenue any longer, um, that you would see dramatically. Now, how is that behavior. possible that a hospital doesn't care about revenue anymore? Well, if they got if they got the revenue fixed under under like an ACO or, or a Medicare type arrangement, uh, okay. then they you. would no longer care. You got to fix revenue. You can decide a cost. So, what would they do differently? Right? If, what would you do differently? Well, instead of taking care of someone in a really big building where they have to spend the night and have all kinds of nursing care and all kinds of machinery. You take care of them in a small building anytime you could, so in a clinic. And anytime you saw someone in a clinic where you could actually take care of them in their home, you would do that because it costs about 10 times as much to take care of somebody in a big building as it does in a small building, and it costs infinitely more to take care of someone in a small building than in their home. But right when, but when you have no incentive to do that, when your incentive is, I would like to admit this person to the hospital because that's how I get paid, that's when you see costs start to increase. It, it's really cheaper to treat someone at home. Oh, sure. Much cheaper. But, uh, and, and that's not and doctors. Is that, is that a doctor or is that a well, – who, who comes to the home? I should say this. Um, to be able to um, – in the case of really high-cost patients, people who have six or more chronic disease diseases, it makes a ton more sense to send a nurse to their home. Oh, I see then wait for them to come to the hospital and have a nurse walk the floor. So it's not for every patient, but for the type sort of 5% of the population that drives 60 to 70% right. of the costs, it makes a lot more sense to bring them their medications, make sure they get to their appointments, see them at home, make sure that they have the heat working in their house and all of those sorts of things. Um, that'll keep them healthy. They did that in Winona, at a hospital in Winona, and they just got like a assigned a partner for people, mm-hmm. and uh, th- these are the people who used came to the emergency room the most and used the most resources. And you're right, the people with chronic 
conditions are the, the drivers of cost. And this brought down the cost tremendously. If someone would show up at their home and, right. yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's, 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 it's more satisfying for everybody, too. You, you know, when, when, when I, I still believe that there has, we have to bring the idealism back into the healthcare system. And the idealism says, you know, can you get people the care they need when they need it instead of waiting for things to get so bad that they have to wait in your waiting room for an hour and a half to come see you. And then when they come see you, you have 10 minutes with them. And all you can do is give them a prescription or send them off to some other doctor. And it's 50-50 that they're even going to go. And so you tend to get distraught. You tend to feel like you're not making a difference anymore. But um, if you really have... So there's burnout for the doctors and there's burnout from the patients. I think you can find solutions that are good for patients and good for clinicians. Uh, some of that uh, I found when I was at was at CMS was was really interesting. It was actually giving the doctor back a little more time in their day and a little more freedom. So we we had this program which is called a primary care medical home, and what we did is we said, "We'll we'll pay you your normal rate when you see patients, but we'll also give you a little monthly stipend um, of like seventy dollars per patient per month," and. Here's the deal. You can use that on anything you want as long as it's good for patient care. But you decide. And it was interesting. I, I would go and sit down with physicians who were part of this program. And one of the docs said, I said, I'd like to hear how you're spending the money. And he said, well, I don't want to tell you. And I said, why? He said, well, I think you're going to be upset. I said, well, how uh, about if I tell you, I promise you I won't be upset. He said, Okay. Uh, well, we, we, we created a Skype network so that the seniors who were coming into our practice could talk to each other and talk to their kids because we found out they were lonely. And when they did that, they were much healthier and much happier and they didn't come in as much. And so we spent our money on this Skype network. And I said, I'm not mad. I'm not mad. That is exactly the kind of thing that doctors who are really thinking about their patients and have a little bit of time and a little bit more money um, are doing. And he said, as a result of this, I was going to retire next year at 65, and now I'm going to go to 70, because I am able to take a little bit more control. Well, thank you. I'm glad we, th- th- this, of course, in this election, the most important issue, but also for many families, most important economic issue in their lives. Thank you for the work you're doing. I hope we do get to universal care and we get there Soon, I, and one thing you've said before, which I think is so right, that we don't want to be changing our healthcare system every four years. The public tends to arrive at things before the politicians do, and so if you look at issues like marriage equality, or or uh, drug laws, or prosecution around marijuana possession, or some of these things, it seems to me like it sh- it shows up in the public. And then somewhere between five or ten years later, the politicians we, respond. We get around to get, it. Get yeah. around to it. And I feel like that's where we may be right now, where we have a lot of energy around saying, oh, for God's sakes, let's just take this issue off the table. Yes, everybody shouldn't have everything, but we shouldn't have people shouldn't have to worry about this anymore. And I think we probably are largely there because of the risk we had over the last couple of years of repeal. And I think that will hopefully translate, um, but it won't translate without a lot of hard work. And I think that's um, what I think a lot of us uh, have to commit ourselves to doing is making sure that we, we do the work to make that we, happen. We've come so far, a large percentage of Republicans 
say, I mean, not Republican office holders, as you say, but a large percentage of Republicans would are for single payer. Yes, that's true. The day of the election, day of, we just had this uh, midterm election. There, were, the Wall Street Journal opinion page came out with a three-page thing that was labeled Trump's healthcare accomplishments. I don't know if you saw this. No. Technically, it wasn't three pages. It was two and a half, and the font was kind of big. But it was, nonetheless, Trump's healthcare accomplishments. And I read it because I thought, this is awfully nice at the Wall Street Journal to summarize in three pages or two and a half what, what Trump's accomplishments were. And I wanted to know. And, and in the last paragraph was the, the sort of the socket to him punchline paragraph. No one has done more for healthcare freedom than Donald Trump. I, I'm paraphrasing. Now, do you know what that means, healthcare freedom? No. I have been in healthcare in one form or another for 30 plus years. I've talked to tens of, literally tens of thousands of people, patients, Americans. I've literally never heard the phrase healthcare freedom. I've never heard anybody say, I want more healthcare freedom. <laughs> I've heard people say, I want more healthcare security. Or I want better health care or higher quality or fewer hassles. Never health care freedom. Yet we have a president I think we should be thankful for who apparently has done more for that thing, if we wanted it, than any other president. And I thought that would be something that you would find interesting. I think if I could take the Wall Street Journal <laughs> op-ed pages and we'll end on this. If I could take uh, their defense uh, or defend what they what they said there, I think what they mean is you get to choose your own doctor and you get to keep your health care plan if you like it. And you remember, I'm using those words because right. Obama said, if you like your plan, you can keep it. And that was called by PolitiFact or some the lie of the year. You may remember that. And... He didn't mean it as a lie. You can't, you know, insurance companies have the freedom not to offer right. <laughs> the, the policy they offered last year. So he shouldn't have said it, right. but he didn't, wasn't lying like right. we see now. When I thought about doing this, I thought about that as being the lie of the year. And I'm thinking now, can you imagine now there being something called the lie of the year? Right. That might be the lie of the day. <laughs> the, I, they can't do the lie of the year now. Right. Thank you, Andy Slavitt. Oh, what you didn't see there is that uh, Andy and I ended by uh, shaking hands. Again, I've got to get used to this. It's just audio. Here. And speaking of audio, I want to thank Leo Kotke for his beautiful music. And I uh, hope you enjoyed this. If you did, uh, tell friends about it. Maybe I'll do another one. I don't know. Thanks for listening. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. 
Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.